By the third week, I'm also uh, learning where the pockets of people are who are my ameners. Right back there. So I love that. I love that. So the first week we were in the Gospel of Matthew, and the second week we were in the Gospel of Mark, which makes sense that in these three weeks that we're together today, we're hearing God's word from the Gospel of Luke. This story in the Gospel of Luke. So would you join me in a moment of silence to prepare our hearts and prayer that God would speak? Let's bow. God, out of the silence you spoke and all that we see and know came to be. You brooded over the waters in the beginning by your spirit and by your word and by your spirit you called forth life. And by your word and your spirit, you have come to your people over and over and over again to give them life, to breathe into them life. And so we pray even today, in this moment that you have gifted us with, that in your grace, you would come to us again by your word and by your spirit and breathe into us life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here's Jesus before us today, just up out of the waters of his baptism, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, some translations say driven by the Spirit, into the wilderness, just up out of the waters of his own baptism. I remember the waters of my baptism. How many of you remember your own baptisms? I think hearing a story like this is an invitation to remember our own baptism. I hope that happens for you each time you are blessed to be able to receive someone in their own baptism and share that moment with them. Do you think back to that moment? It was in the month of August. I was raised, I think I shared with you before, in North Texas in Wichita Falls. And in Wichita Falls in August, it's hot, really, really hot. And it was a Sunday night, August the 10th, 1979. I was 10 years old. And I walked up before the church and stated my intention to give my life to Jesus in baptism. I remember the water was cold. Isn't that strange? It was so hot. The water felt so cold. I remember these things. I remember, I remember being uh, plunged beneath the surface of the water. I remember coming up out of the water and expecting something. And there was no splitting of the skies or voice booming from the heavens. But there was the embrace. Of the one who baptized me, there was the embrace of my parents. There was the embrace of the community of faith. Some of you may have experienced similar things. And I remember going home afterwards on that Sunday night. My parents had invited folks over on this special occasion. And I remember all the kids ran outside to play in the backyard, and we had one of those glass sliding doors. And I remember I was inside, and the adults were, were uh, congratulating me and encouraging me. And I remember stepping over to the sliding glass door and looking through the glass at the kids playing outside. 
and just thinking I should see the world differently. I remember my own baptism. And for me, maybe not for everyone, but for me, looking back on it, there was the sense that the Spirit was present and the Spirit was calling me, really summonsing me, beckoning me into something, calling me to preach. This is my story. I'll share a little bit of it with you. Um, my parents raised me in faith from the day I was born. It was not their experience. Neither one of them had that experience. But my father and my mother were committed to the life of faith and to the life of the church. And so, at every service, on every occasion, we were present and we were there. And I remember one particular uh, uh, week, I had been asked on Wednesday night if I would give the short devotional talk to the church gathered on Wednesday night for the devotional before everybody went to class. You familiar with this? I was young. I was a young boy. So I worked on that, and I worked on that. And my father uh, drove me up to the church early that evening. And across from the church, just across the parking lot, shared the same parking lot, was the grocery store, the Piggly Wiggly. Anyone remember the Piggly Wiggly? And we went into the Piggly Wiggly because my dad wanted to ask the manager, hey, do you have any extra Coke crates that we could borrow? And sure enough, he said, sure. So he went and got a Coke crate. And we carried the Coke crate over to the church. And we climbed up on a platform sort of like this. And my dad set the Coke crate down on the, on the ground. And he kind of pushed it underneath. And he said, now, when you come up to, to, to give your talk, pull the Coke crate out, and you can step up on it like a step so that people can see you over the lectern, the podium. I was small. And I don't remember what I preached that Wednesday night, what devotional talk I gave. I don't remember what it was about. I'd love to be able to roll back and, and have a good laugh at what that must have been. But I tell you what, here's what I do know. That when that was over and the devotional ended and I stood there, the congregation came to me, and they spoke words over me. You would have thought that I was Billy Graham <laughs> or some other famous preacher. You would have thought it was the best sermon ever preached. I'm quite certain it was not. And in those moments, from the waters of my baptism and the Spirit's leading through the people of God, I felt called to preach. When people asked me from that point, what do you want to be when you grow up? And all my friends were saying, I want to be a firefighter, or I want to be uh, a dentist, or most of the time it was, I want to be a football player or a basketball player. I always said, I want to be a preacher. My good friend that I grew up with and I, same church, same age, went home to his house one afternoon after church and made signs notebook paper, and we got some crowns, made signs that we could put on both of our doors. It said, future preacher. And then underneath it, we added this little comment, but always a teacher for God. We thought that sounded good. Sort of gave us an out. Future preacher. 
But always, and he hung it on his door, and I hung it on my door. I didn't realize how prophetic that was to preach and to teach. So here's Jesus just up out of the waters of his own baptism, filled with the Spirit, led, led by the Spirit into the wilderness and then out of the wilderness and back into Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke says. Luke's big on the Spirit stuff as if it matters. And Jesus shows up at church, Luke says. Actually, it's the synagogue, but let's just call it church. It's church for Jesus. He shows up at church and he stands up to preach. It's his first public sermon. And what does he preach? What does Jesus hear before us today, up out of his baptism, filled with the Spirit, into the wilderness to prepare his heart, to prepare his voice, to prepare his life? What does he preach when he comes back in the power of the Spirit? I want to know. Don't you want to know? This is a grand setup. I hope you realize this in the sermon. What is it that God through God's Spirit in Jesus the Word become flesh? What will he say in that moment, the most profound preaching moments in the history of preaching? What will Jesus say? I want to know. Because for all the years um, given to preaching, preaching, the study of it, the teaching of it, the doing it, here's what I know. The best of it is not learned in lectures or in theory. It is learned in the act of listening to it. At least most preaching, really good preaching. Amen. Listening to it and letting it soak into your consciousness over time and the doing of it. What grabs my attention? What is it that grabs my attention? That moves me to the edge of my seat? I rarely see this happen in church. I see it happen at the movies all the time. That moment where you kind of lean forward and you're waiting breathlessly. What is it? in the move of the Spirit of God, by God's Word spoken, that would move you to the edge of your seat to lean forward in anticipation? What is it? What is the Spirit doing underneath and between the words spoken to capture hearts and to shape minds? What is it about this calling to speak a Word of God that transforms? So I'm paying attention to Jesus here right in front of us this morning who stands to preach. It is an audacious thing to speak a word of God. I latched on to this quote early on and as it turns out, it has not let go of me. An old theologian that once wrote, the question of questions about preaching is not how does one preach, as if there were some magic formula or technique. It's not how does one preach, but how can one preach? Who dares to preach knowing what preaching is? 
It is an audacious thing for me, for anyone, as you anticipate receiving the next person who will come and lead you in the ministry of the word. It is an audacious thing. It is an audacious thing for you to expect and to know and to cling to the notion that God would be present in and through these words despite our human frailty and limited understanding. It is audacious. Who dares to preach knowing what preaching is? So we gather in this moment with Jesus in our midst, full of the Spirit, and we want to know what will he say? And what he says is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Just let that resonate for a moment. This is what Jesus said. The first words he speaks in his sermon is to say to the people gathered, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me, Jesus says, to preach. I want to know. To preach what? What does the word become flesh, filled with the Spirit, say? Preach, Jesus. Preach to us now. Not just then. Preach to us now, in this moment. Preach in the power of the Spirit. And help us to have the courage to hear, truly hear. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To preach freedom to the prisoners to preach recovery of sight to the blind. And that may be some of you, maybe me. To set the oppressed free, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach this word, this news. The Spirit burns like a fire in his bones to say, good news to the poor. Set the oppressed free. Turn the prisoners loose and give the blind sight. This is the sermon of sermons anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit in Jesus for then and for now, for all the things we want to make faith about, for all the things we want to make this church business about, for all the things we want to make Christianity about in our own time and place. Jesus cuts right through it all and says, look, when the Spirit comes and God in the flesh opens his mouth, the anointing is to say, good news to the poor. It's what John had been telling them was coming. John says, look, there's a voice crying in the wilderness. It's coming. Get yourself ready. Get yourself ready to hear this. Make straight paths. There's a voice that's coming. And he says, when that voice comes, this is, what, this is what's happening. He says, every valley will be filled in, 
and every high place will be brought low. Think about that image for a minute. Every lowly place of emptiness or despair or desperation or of not enough will be filled. I love that. And every high place where there's an abundance, where there's more than enough, it's going to be brought down. You know why? For the fullness of all things and all people, Jesus says, the anointing is to preach good news to the poor and to the oppressed and to the imprisoned and to the blind. It's really what Luke has been leading us to all along from the very beginning. When Luke begins to tell the story of God coming into the world, setting in motion this um, anointing that leads to proclamation. He says, God announced his coming, his arrival. He sent messengers. So the messengers come first to who? They come to a priest named Zechariah, Luke tells us. Luke tells us this part of the story of Jesus' birth. Who is Zechariah? Again, um, I know this is a little bit unorthodox, but this is sermon quiz time. Who is Zechariah? He's a priest in, the house of, priest in the house of God, yes? He is, let's be more fundamental, he is a man. He is married to Elizabeth. He is a priest. And not only that, but in this moment that Luke is telling us, he is the chosen priest serving in the house of God. They, they drew lots to see who would go into the most holy place. And it's Zechariah who's chosen. Let me just tell you that Zechariah represents a place of authority. He is, he is privileged and honored as a male in that culture and as a priest in the house of God and as a chosen priest. You can't like paint the picture any more clear. And the word comes to Zechariah from the angel about this announcement. And what happens to Zechariah? He doesn't believe it. And as a result of that, he comes out and his voice is gone. Zechariah, the one who has privilege and voice and authority, has no voice. Now, there's a second announcement about the coming of Jesus. Do you know who it comes to? Not Zechariah, but to Mary. Who is Mary? Uh, in, the, in the most basic, fundamental sense, <laughs> she's a young girl. And she is betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. In that culture, as a young girl, does she have position? No. Did she decide to choose Joseph? No. That was arranged. And let me just tell you, in that culture, and in many others, even today, he is much, much older than her. And the reason they haven't been married yet is because they're waiting for her to come of age to be married. She's, she's spoken for. It's not her decision. It's not her choice. She does not have power. She does not have privilege. The angel comes to Mary. 
And when the angel gives Mary that announcement, what, what is, what's the result? Mary sings. We call it the Magnificat. She has voice and it praises God. You see the contrast? Zechariah, who has voice and position and authority and privilege, has no voice. And Mary, who has no voice, who has no position or authority or, or power, Mary has voice. Every valley will be filled in and every high place will be brought low. It's God's desire. It's God's purpose. The story is building. And not only that, but Luke tells us that when Jesus is born, oh, by the way, as a matter of detail, he wants us to know, where is he born? In Bethlehem. Where in Bethlehem? Out back in the alley? Not in a place of high esteem. Not in the place you would wish to have your child born. He was born out back. And when the announcement comes that he has been born, you know, star in the night sky and all of that business, the angels come again to announce, where does that announcement happen? It happens to shepherds out in fields, working class Joes. I used to tell my students in Abilene, I used to say, you would think that when the God of all creation comes, that it would be news worth announcing from the centers of power, from Washington or New York or London or Paris, but no, it's out in the field in Merkel. That's where he comes. That's where the word comes to people like this. This is not by accident. Luke is telling the story, leading us this way. And then he says, catch this, Luke 3, he says that when the time comes, when Jesus was just an infant, his parents take him to the temple to offer the sacrifice. And and they offer there a sacrifice of a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Remember this? A pair of doves or two young pigeons. It's a breadcrumb in the story. You know what a breadcrumb is? You sort of drop them so people... It's a breadcrumb in the story. Because the commandment about dedicating an infant, the sacrifices, come from Leviticus. And in Leviticus, this is what you get. You get this command um, that says you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb. But Leviticus 12 says, but in the event where you cannot afford a lamb, you may offer a pair of doves or pigeons. It is the exception for those who are poor. In the story of Jesus, it's the only clue we get as to the status of the family that Jesus is born into. He did not come to and through the rich and the wealthy. He came to the lowly. He came to the poor, with the poor, through the poor, for the poor. 
It's no wonder that when Jesus finally steps up to preach, the first time, for the very first time, he takes up preacher prophet Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor. John saw it coming, do you? Luke told the story in this way so that we might hear it, can we? What do we think the inbreaking of the kingdom is about anyway? Us in our prosperity? Here's the last of three sermons I've had the privilege to share with you. In the end, really, one word to proclaim and for Jesus to make clear. So I leave you with this story. Years ago, um, 20 plus years ago, I learned, I read a little description about a book that told the story about a church in Washington, DC. An atypical church, it's called Church of the Savior. In the Adams Morgan neighborhood, which at that time, it's uh, gentrified now, it revived, but it was a very impoverished area of the city of Washington. And this church had planted itself there, and, and its intention was to give its life away for the sake of the people in that neighborhood. And I thought, wow, I want to know more about that. So I called them and said, can I come visit? And they said, sure. So I went to Washington. Preacher Stephen goes to Washington. And I visited the Church of the Savior, and I learned about their story and their mission and their life for the people of their community, and visited the outpost of their ministry and mission in that part of the city. One of those is called Christ House. It's a house in the neighborhood that they've transformed into a place to serve the chronically ill, homeless people of their neighborhood. And as I approached it, just outside, there was a statue on the street. It, it was a statue um, called the Servant Jesus, and it was a, a bronze statue of Jesus kneeling with a basin, water basin, and he's looking up as if he summons people to come and kneel you know, to wash their feet. He's dressed in blue jeans, tattered blue jeans in the statue. He's wearing a shirt that's a hoodie. He has a beard. He looks like you'd think the face of Jesus is supposed to look and you've seen and all of that. He's kneeling there, and I notice that, the servant Jesus, right outside, right there on the sidewalk. And I noticed that they had put a fence around the servant Jesus, and I thought, huh. And I later learned the story of that. It's because so many of the homeless people would come by, and they would loiter on the servant Jesus. They would fall asleep up against him or leave trash around there and sometimes even relieve themselves around the statue of the servant Jesus, and someone thought that's just not appropriate, and so they put the fence around the servant Jesus. I went inside Christ's house, I was with a small group of people, and as I mentioned, they exist to serve the chronically um, ill homeless people of their neighborhood because they had learned that so often if you're homeless and you get sick, you go to the emergency room, they get you just well enough to send you back out on the street and you get sick again and it's a vicious cycle. And so they wanted to take them in and nurse them to greater health. And so 
we walked upstairs, the group of us, we sat in a conference room up the stairs. It was like two or three stories. And, and they told us about their story of how they came to be and what they do and all of that. And when we got ready to leave, we stood up to leave the room. And I had been the last one in, so I was the first one closest to the door. And so I went back out the door. And the group followed me. And I went back the way I'd come in. And um, as we were making our way down the hall, there was kind of a, a nurse's reception station on my right. And as I approached the door where you turned to go down the stairway, sitting right there before the door was an elderly man in a wheelchair, and his head was bowed. And it was obviously ob obvious that he had been brought there to receive care. And as I approached him, I thought he was asleep or something, he looked up at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, I know you. And I kind of smiled at him and chuckled. I'd never seen him before. He'd never seen me before. And I nodded at him kindly. And I walked around him and then started to go down the stairs. And I could hear behind me every person that followed the same three words spoken to every person that passed. I know you. I know you words echoed in my head as I walked down the stairs and out onto the street where the servant Jesus statue is. And in that moment, not only did the sun flood the streets before Christ's house, but I remember that Jesus had once said, look, when it all comes down in the end, and all this is set straight. I'll say to those on my right, come into your reward because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a prisoner and you visited me. And I was sick and you cared for me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we do any of that? And he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, sitting in a wheelchair in Christ's house, or in Kerrville, Texas, or wherever God sends you, whatever you've done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. I know you. I know you. This is the word of God in the power of the Spirit, the words of Jesus. The Spirit is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And those of you who bear his name and have been given the gift of his Spirit, you're anointed too to preach good news in words and in deeds and in action to the poor. So that the words of Jesus fall over you. I know you. Because whatever you've done for one of the least of these, you've done for me.
Let us pray. God, let your spirit descend upon us in these words, spoken by Jesus long ago and spoken in our midst today, that we might know you and love you as we know and love the poor and the downcast, the excluded and mar marginalized, those who are oppressed and imprisoned, sick and hurting. May we love them and in so doing love you. In Jesus we pray, amen.